Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. As president of Princeton, he was a talked-about and written-about man. He began to drive for funds. He hired 50 new tutors to superintend the student studies, according to the preceptorial system he had admired at Oxford and Cambridge. He made plans to abolish the snobbish eating clubs, which took the place of the forbidden fraternities, and to divide the university into colleges in the English manner, where students and tutors would eat their meals together. He tightened up the curriculum. Sons of wealthy alumni found themselves flunking out. He's spoiling the best country club in America, groaned the old grads. But for a while they went along, even in the face of a drop in enrollment. Led by Grover Cleveland and M. Taylor Pine, wealthy Princetonians began to make really sizable contributions. Ralph Adams Cram was designing the new quadrangles in the new Tudor Gothic style, dear to the hearts of the Anglophiles. These were the years of Theodore Roosevelt's new nationalism. The president of Princeton, who was described as fighting the entrenched snobbery of privileged wealth in the colleges, was greatly in demand as a speaker. His reforms at Princeton had at first clear sailing, but now opposition was raising its head. He ran up against another Presbyterian, equally enthusiastic for a great future at Princeton, but with somewhat different ideas as to how to bring it about. Andrew West was dean of the graduate school. At first, he and Wilson agreed as to how this school, which they were both promoting, should fit into the new scheme. Differences of opinion as to details turned into a personal contest of wills. The rankers of the presbytery began to work in both men. Once Woodrow Wilson had formed an opinion, it became to his mind the cause of righteousness. If you disagreed, you were either a knave or a fool. He decided Dean West was both. John Dos Passos, Mr. Wilson's War. Everybody, CJ here, Anarchy's smooth operator and your Renaissance man for the new Dark Age. Back with yet another dose of dangerous history. This is DHP episode 192, which is going to be part three of our coverage of Woodrow Wilson. And this episode is going to cover Wilson's tenure as president 
of Princeton University. And then, as of now at least, my plan is for part four in this series to dive deep into the content of Wilson's academic writings in history and political science, and then for part five in this mini-series to cover his time as governor of New Jersey, possibly also including the presidential campaign of 1912, if it doesn't look like that'll make part five too, too long. If it does look like that, maybe I'll detach the 1912 presidential campaign and make that into part six on its own, but we'll see. Woodrow Wilson was the president of Princeton University from October 1902 through October of 1910, precisely eight years, almost to the day, and coincidentally, the exact same amount of time that he would be president of the United States. Interestingly, not long before Wilson became president of Princeton, in a letter to the historian Frederick Jackson Turner, Wilson had written, quote, After all, I was born a politician, and must be at the task for which, by means of my historical writing, I have all these years in training, end quote. This part of Wilson's career, his years as the president of Princeton, marked the transition phase from being just a regular old academic, to being a politician. Because as president of a major university, that's a very political job in a lot of senses of the word. He would also, during that time, begin to comment more and more directly on present-day political issues. And he would increasingly, over his years as president of Princeton, be talked about more and more by Democratic Party bigwigs as a possible candidate for office. Perhaps even the highest office. Becoming the president of Princeton also would facilitate Wilson's introduction to even more members of the early 20th century American power elite. For example, J.P. Morgan himself attended Wilson's installation ceremony, and President Theodore Roosevelt wrote to friends of his very positively of Wilson at the time Wilson became president of Princeton. T.R. said things like, quote, Woodrow Wilson is a perfect Trump. I am overjoyed at his election, end quote. And in fact, T.R., again, president of the United States at the time, was planning to attend Wilson's installation ceremony too, but he ended up missing it due to some sort of carriage and or trolley car accident. Later, though, he did attend the Army-Navy football game, which was played at Princeton in 1905, and he also brought along with him then-Secretary of State Elihu Root. By the way, Elihu Root is a super important player in the the turn-of-the-century American power elite, about whom I may do an episode at some time in the future, who knows when. He was very important in getting the kind of overseas phase of American empire building off to a very aggressive start. And by the way, just as a side note, I am sure that Elihu Root will be covered quite a bit in the future in my Rise of the American Empire audio lecture course, when we eventually get to the turn of the century, turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Because Root was key in terms of his connections to the political and corporate elites of the time and the things he did kind of institutionally and politically to help lay the groundwork for the United States empire going global. And just as a reminder, for 15 bucks per month or more on Patreon or Subscribestar, one of the many benefits you will get is access to these Rise of the American Empire audio lectures 
the second of which I am currently working on as I record this Wilson episode, and which will focus on how the United States, at the moment of securing its independence from the British Empire, was already clearly indicating that it was going to be an empire itself. And here we're primarily going to be talking about the territory known as Trans-Appalachia at the time, the land in between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River, and how the United States managed to grab that territory, even though by most reasonable measures it did not have anything like a reasonable claim to any of that territory. But anyway, that's a story for another day if you're willing to throw down the 15 bucks per month. Getting back to Woodrow Wilson. In the beginning of his presidency of Princeton, I should also mention that Princeton trustee Grover Cleveland, former president of the United States, was at Wilson's installation. So even though Wilson did not get to have the current president at his installation, he did have a relatively recent ex-president of the United States, and one who, of course, was of Wilson's own party, the Democratic Party. Former Republican congressman and Speaker of the House Thomas Brackett Reed also attended Wilson's installation as did former Secretary of War Robert Todd Lincoln, who, of course, also happened to be the son of Abe Lincoln. Mark Twain was also there, as were several other prominent literary figures of the time, as well as several major players in the publishing world. One of those who was in attendance at Wilson's ceremony was a man named George Harvey, who owned, among many other things, Harper's Weekly. Harvey had previously worked with Wilson on the publication of his book, History of the American People. George Harvey also happened to be a major player in the Democratic Party in New Jersey. And as we'll see a bit later on, he would be one of the first people of significant political stature who began to nudge Wilson to encourage him to stick his toe into politics. And Harvey also would help pull some strings to pave the way for Wilson in the earliest stages of his political career even though eventually Harvey would become disillusioned with Wilson and would become one of his harshest critics. Beginning all the way back with Wilson's speech upon assuming the presidency of Princeton in 1902, George Harvey apparently was already beginning to think about Wilson as a possible future Democratic Party presidential candidate. There was only one African-American president at the ceremony, apparently a token, and it was none other than Booker T. Washington of the Tuskegee Institute. And Booker T. Washington's very moderate ideas on race relations were absolutely at the outer edge of what Wilson was willing to go along with, even in his better days on the issue. Wilson's daughter, Jessie, later recalled that Woodrow Wilson was very complimentary to Washington's speech, saying it was the best one of the event. But I can't help but wonder, what exactly he actually said and how exactly he actually said it. And I can't help but think that maybe it was a classic case of a compliment that is really about condescension, patronizing, and pandering to compensate for kind of affluent white liberal guilt and semi-closeted racism, you know, sort of the classic, he's so articulate, he speaks so well with the implied but unstated for a black kind of lingering unspoken behind it. But, you know, of course, I wasn't there, so I can't say for sure exactly what Wilson said and how he said it in regard to Booker T. Washington. But 
you know, I could be wrong on this speculation, but it seems possible, maybe even a bit likely, that something like that may have been what really happened. Especially when you combine that tendency of people like Wilson to give these sort of backhanded compliments to prominent black people with the many racist things Wilson said and did over the course of his career. Anyway, Wilson's inaugural speech at the event was entitled Princeton for the Nation's Service, a slight variant on his speech entitled Princeton in the Nation's Service that he had given back when Princeton officially upgraded to a university a few years previously. And in this speech, Wilson said that the leaders of Princeton University, quote, are planning for the country, end quote, and that the, quote, service of institutions of learning is not private, but public, end quote, that the country, quote, needs efficient and enlightened men, end quote, and that, quote, universities of the country must take part in supplying them, end quote. Now, this to me is classic kind of progressive, elitist, technocratic, and paternalist thinking. And this overall mindset would set the tone for everything from Wilson's era through Herbert Hoover, through to FDR and the so-called Brain Trust, right on through to the so-called best and brightest of the Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson years. The idea that progressive or later so-called quote-unquote liberal academics, scientists, engineers, and other experts and technocrats should be empowered to plan and regulate and remold more and more aspects of society and the economy, and that these enlightened, efficient men would be able to make things more efficient and rational, with no conceivable potential downsides to even worry about, if only the right sorts of progressive technocrats are given sufficient resources and power. Now, if you're not a drinker of the Kool-Aid of this particular worldview, it appears as a rather arrogant, dangerous way of thinking fraught with all sorts of hazards of unintended consequences. To my mind, the metaphor to think about is how it was, in fact, these very sorts of progressives in the first half of the 20th century who thought they could drain the Everglades and reconfigure through artificial means South Florida's entire watershed system in order to make it more rational and efficient than Mother Nature had put it together organically over the course of thousands of years, and how the end result of this attempt to rationalize the Everglades watershed was alternating between floods, droughts, and wildfires. And if you apply that metaphor to society and the economy, and you have the sort of highly critical and skeptical view that I have of progressive technocracy as an ideology, then I think you kind of get my point. Anyway, the last line of the speech was, quote, we must lead the world, end quote which, of course, got massive applause given the sort of occasion this was. Again, this is classic progressive academic elitist thought that would dominate the mainstream left in 20th century America. Again, you see it in FDR's Brain Trust, you see it in JFK's Best and Brightest, and on into the present. You can see this popping up in various manifestations of the kind of center-left of the Democratic Party in particular, the parts of it that claim to be non-ideological and things like that, the idea that expert intellectuals 
should simply be put in charge and given whatever power and resources necessary to plan society and solve all of its problems. Often this is dressed up in camouflage of, oh, this is simply pragmatism and utilitarianism, and it's actually not an ideology and blah, 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 blah. But of course, if you're standing outside of it, it looks quite ideological, in addition to potentially very, very dangerous, because it often has a totalitarian side in practice. Also in this speech, Wilson had begun to kind of sketch the outlines of some of the changes and reforms he wanted to institute at the university, some of which he would successfully implement, and others that would cause controversy and pushback during his tenure. Another member of that time period's power elite who was not personally present at the installation was the steel baron Andrew Carnegie, then one of the richest men in the world. He did personally visit Princeton not too long after Wilson was sworn in, and was persuaded to make a donation to the university. So again, as president of Princeton, Wilson is constantly rubbing elbows with various figures of the the turn-of-the-century American kind of corporate side of the power elite, as well as some of the politicians eventually. The Wilson family had to move from the home that they had custom-built on Library Place into the college president's official residence. The Board of Trustees granted the Wilsons a $500 stipend for redecorating the house as they wanted, and Mrs. Wilson, despite this, was apparently very disappointed at having to move out of the custom-built home that they had lived in for the past six years. Now, I'm not exactly sure if the presidential residence at Princeton was smaller or objectively, you know, worse in any way. I don't really know. For all I know, the presidential residence may have been bigger and or nicer, objectively speaking. But maybe it was just that she really felt at home in their previous place, and that the new place seemed like it wasn't really their house, which is a feeling I can understand. Anyway, just months after Wilson became president of Princeton, his father Joseph died in January of 1903 at 80 years of age. He'd been having some pretty significant health problems for a while, and Woodrow had ended up being able to spend a fair amount of time with him toward the end because Joseph had moved in with Ellen and Woodrow during his last years. However, Joseph had been too ill at the time to actually attend Wilson's installation ceremony in October of 1902. Now, pretty much immediately upon becoming president of the university, Wilson began actively pushing for various academic reforms, designed to modernize Princeton and improve its academic rigor and standing among the ranks of American universities at the time. Wilson biographer John Milton Cooper Jr., in his Pulitzer-nominated book, Woodrow Wilson, A Biography, writes that Wilson's actions upon assuming the presidency of Princeton showed, quote, a penchant for bold action. In situations where he had a choice, he would nearly always pick the grander, riskier course, end quote. This is how another Wilson biographer, A. Scott Berg, summarizes Wilson's changes to the academic side of the university. Quote, He called for a clear definition of each department, with a sequence of courses, in which each student might concentrate after two years of prescribed courses. Then students should elect some courses that would allow them to specialize further within their majors, and some courses from different disciplines, which would round out their educations. 
This plan of a major with electives and distribution requirements would become the model for most liberal arts curricula across the country for the next century. End quote. Wilson particularly wanted to improve the departments of history, economics, and biology, which were perceived as lackluster at the time, and he wanted to add a graduate school, a law school, a school of electrical engineering, and a museum of natural history to Princeton. Altogether, cost estimates for all of these changes and additions were over $12 million, and some additional basic infrastructure upgrades, such as new dormitories, would add even more to that. And to put this in perspective, at the time that Wilson assumed the helm of Princeton, the university's entire endowment was only $3.8 million. In a report early on to the trustees, Wilson argued for his changes and seeking the funds necessary for them by saying, quote, If Princeton should ever come to be generally thought of as standing below Harvard and Yale in academic development, her opportunity for leadership and even for independent action within her own sphere, would be gone. Either we may withdraw from the university competition and devote ourselves to making what we are solid and distinguished, or we must find enough money to make Princeton, in fact, a great university. End quote. Wilson would appeal heavily to wealthy Princeton alumni and even to some wealthy individuals who weren't alumni at all. Among the latter would be some of the richest men in America at the time, including Andrew Carnegie and J.P. Morgan, and he even at one point tried to solicit some donations from the Rockefellers, although he was not successful on that. In late 1902, Wilson spoke at an event of Princeton alumni in Chicago that was hosted by Cyrus McCormick Jr. of International Harvester, a guy whom we mentioned in the last Wilson episode, I believe. And Wilson also attended an event for wealthy Princeton alumni in New York City, hosted by James Waddell Alexander, who at the time was president of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States, one of the country's most important life insurance companies. Wilson was admittedly uncomfortable with having to constantly solicit donations, as most people are who are not really experienced in doing this, honestly. And for example, in one fundraising letter, he actually wrote, quote, to ask for money is unpalatable to any man's spirit, even though he ask not for himself, but for the best cause in the world. End quote. By the way, notice the grandiosity in that statement, saying that money for upgrading Princeton was the best cause in the world. And this is a frequent thing in Wilson's speeches and writings throughout his career. He always was convinced that whatever cause he was working for at a given time was the best and most important thing in the world. This very dramatic and extreme and even Manichaean view. Because, of course, in that case, anyone who's not willing to help him in whatever project he's up to is quite reprehensible. And those who might actually actively try to work against one of Wilson's causes would be even worse than reprehensible. Harry Fine, whom Wilson chose to be dean of students, referred to Wilson as, quote, a man of certainty, end quote, and said that this, quote, made him enemies, yet it was one of the most powerful factors in his success. To be certain of anything in a world of doubt is to have one of the most powerful weapons that ever comes to the hand of man, end quote. As we'll no doubt see again and again throughout the Wilson series, 
Woodrow Wilson always tended to be very strongly Manichaean in his worldview. Black and white. Us and them. Kind of like a Sith Lord, he always tended to see anyone who disagreed with him, or even just didn't sufficiently positively support his plans, as an enemy. Even if that person had previously been very close to him. Wilson tried to instill much more rigorous standards at Princeton, both in terms of academic performance and academic honesty. Students, including some of the school's top athletes, began to fail classes and began to be dropped from the college for lackluster academic performance and for cheating. In one particular instance, the mother of a student who was about to be expelled for cheating wrote Wilson on her son's behalf, saying, quote, I am to have an operation, and I think I shall die if my boy is expelled. End quote. Wilson's response to her was, quote, Madam, we cannot keep in college a boy reported by the student council as cheating. If we did, we should have no standard of honor. You force me to say a hard thing, but if I had to choose between your life, or my life, or anybody's life, and the good of this college, I should choose the good of this college. End quote. Now, to be honest with you here, I'm not sure which I find more unsettling and troubling. This woman's plea to keep her son at Princeton or she'll die? Or Wilson's assertion that, for the good of Princeton, he'd be willing for her, or himself, or anyone else to die? Nothing makes me more sick than drama queen parents trying to get their cheating child off the hook. Given my day job and experience, this shouldn't surprise you that it is something that is a bit of a pet peeve of mine. It's such overwhelming evidence of bad parenting and spoiling a child that it almost makes me physically ill with anger and disgust. First off, the fact that you've got someone who obviously raised a kid who is an entitled cheater, and who then, when the kid gets legitimately busted, tries to get the kid off the hook and shield the kid from any real consequences. I actually once had a student's mother try to do just this, to talk me out of flunking her daughter, whom I had caught cheating. Although, at least in that case, the mother didn't say that she herself might die if I didn't back off and, you know, refrain from flunking her kid. By the way, in that instance, I stood my ground and didn't back down an inch. I was polite. I wasn't a drama queen. I was professional. But I didn't back down one inch. I can't stand these sorts of behaviors of parents on behalf of spoiled cheating children. And it does, in my experience, you know, parents trying to save their children from the negative consequences of their children's bad behavior, it tends, in my experience, to be wealthier families who are more likely to do this sort of thing because they're more likely to have spoiled their children and to have kind of an inflated sense of entitlement for themselves and their children. And I do freely admit that these sorts of behaviors do tend to bring out the class warrior in me to some extent. So, on the one hand, this lady's behavior is disgusting, and I agree with Wilson in not backing down on expelling the kid. And her over-the-top drama queen bullshit of possibly dying if her son gets expelled just adds further to my disdain, because. I'm not a fan of over-the-top 
drama queen histrionics. However, all of that said, Wilson's response is also more than a little bit disturbing, at least to me. Even if he meant it sort of tongue-in-cheek, you know, it's kind of possible, maybe even likely that he did, that this was intended to be an overly dramatic response on his part to almost kind of troll a little bit her overly dramatic statement. Because even if it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, a bit just sort of trolling, it does potentially reveal a little bit of a totalitarian personality streak. I mean, I'm all about so-called institutions of higher learning having high standards for both academic rigor and academic integrity. But saying that you're perfectly willing to have people die for the good of your college, again, even if it was meant a bit tongue-in-cheek, that's still, to me, more than a bit creepy. And given what we know this man would eventually do, that he would eventually get the United States into World War I, and that he would send an army, the vast majority of whom in this war were unwilling conscripts, to go fight and risk death and maiming in the name of some higher good. Well, I mean, since we know what Wilson later does as President of the United States, I think we absolutely can look back at this exchange, at this statement that he made while he was President of Princeton, about his own willingness to potentially sacrifice real people to institutions and ideologies, and I think it is fair to kind of read some darkness back into this little comment that, again, may have just been, at the time, kind of a snarky, almost trolling sort of a comment. And if Wilson never became president, or if he did and never, you know, launched a giant war, got his country into a giant giant war, I guess the war was already launched before the U.S. joined, you know, by, by like three years, but you get my point. That if Wilson had either never become president or as president had presided over, you know, a relatively restrained government and not a lot of war, then we could look back at this comment and say, yeah, he was just kind of countering her drama queen BS with a bit of his own. It's just sort of tongue in cheek. But again, given what we know he later does when he holds the ring of power, I think this is more revealing than just that. Wilson also, during this time, began weeding out faculty members who, for one reason or another, didn't meet the standards that he wanted Princeton to live up to. He himself continued to teach courses while serving as president of the university, and he was willing to clip faculty who didn't seem to take their own teaching very seriously. And I don't really have a major problem or criticism with this as such, and it doesn't seem that most of the trustees and alumni did either overall. After all, they had recently made Wilson the president of the university, knowing his feelings on these sorts of issues. There was a lot of new construction taking place on Princeton's campus during Wilson's presidency, and he specified that the new buildings would mostly be done in the architectural style of Cambridge and Oxford, which was known as Tudor Gothic style. Wilson made an interesting statement about this choice, saying, quote, We have added a thousand years to the history of Princeton by merely putting those lines in our buildings which point every man's imagination to the historic traditions of learning in the English-speaking race. End quote. Once again, note the Anglophilia and Anglo-Saxonism of Wilson's thinking. And I point this out not to say that Wilson was unique in this regard, but merely to make the point that he shared 
this racialist ideology that characterized so much of the American elite of the time period. Princeton, under Wilson's leadership, grew in size by virtually every metric. The total faculty would go from 108 at the start of his tenure to 172 by the end of it, and the buildings and facilities would grow by similar proportions. I've not been able to find any hard data as of this recording, but it seems that the student population initially declined a little bit when Wilson took over because he tightened up standards and people began flunking out or applying elsewhere when they realized this was no longer, you know, a place where you were almost guaranteed to pass no matter what, but that as he expanded the number of faculty and the facilities and all that, it seems that the student population must have grown by approximately similar proportions as did the faculty and the facilities and all that. Like I mentioned a few moments ago, Wilson himself would continue to teach throughout his presidency, usually two courses a year, both in the spring semester, in the department that was then called History and Politics. Apparently, Wilson didn't like the term political science, and this is a rare point of agreement that I actually have with him. In the summer after Wilson's first school year as president of Princeton, he and his wife went to Europe for several months, beginning in the UK and then touring France, Switzerland, and Italy. Now, like I've already mentioned a little bit, even in this very episode, Wilson made friends and acquaintances with, and had to pander to, on some occasions, important members of the American power elite of this time period, particularly those who were Princeton alumni and or trustees, and even some who were neither, but who were potential donors to the university. And we've already mentioned Cleveland Dodge in this series once or twice, and he, of course, was one of the key people in getting Wilson the presidency of the university to begin with. Another very important individual that Wilson had to deal with during this time period was a man named Moses Taylor Pine, who was nicknamed Momo, which to me sounds like an old-school mafia nickname, but this guy was from the Wasp Blue Blood type of organized crime, not the Italian Cosa Nostra type. Momo Pine had graduated Princeton in 1877, just two years ahead of Wilson, and he was a wealthy heir to big money from banking and railroads. He'd become a trustee of Princeton at the age of just 28 back in 1884, and for the next several decades, he was probably one of the most important fundraisers for the university both in terms of soliciting donations from other wealthy friends and acquaintances, and in terms of his own money. On more than one occasion, when the university was going to end the fiscal year in the red, Momo Pine would just write a check to cover whatever was owed. For a while, Momo Pine would be a strong Wilson supporter, but eventually Pine would become one of the leading figures in the anti-Wilson camp among the wealthy alumni and trustees. Like I mentioned a little bit before, Wilson would repeatedly hit up Andrew Carnegie for various donations, and he always made sure to emphasize just how much Princeton had been built and run by Scottish Presbyterians throughout its history. Despite going begging to Carnegie on multiple occasions, including once going to visit Carnegie at his vacation castle in Scotland, only one time did Carnegie actually make a major donation to Princeton. And of all things, it was a gift of over $100,000 in back-then dollars, so a significant sum, but it was so that Princeton could convert a piece of swampland into a lake for its rowing crew team to use. 
the donation was not for anything academic. Wilson's efforts to increase Princeton's academic standards, you know, to make it more competitive with universities such as Harvard and Yale, were pretty successful. A zoology professor who came to teach at Princeton as part of this campaign, a guy named Edwin Grant Conklin, said, quote, What had been a high-class country club began to be a real university, end quote. Princeton was beginning to be taken more seriously by the rest of academia and by the nation as a whole than it had been up till that point. However, there were some among the important alumni and trustees who actually didn't like these changes all that much. They kind of wanted Princeton to stay a country club, a place where the sons of the wealthy could go and get a seemingly prestigious degree, even if they weren't all that intellectual or all that hardworking or even, in some cases, all that honest. And these people who were not fully on board with Wilson's changes would begin to coalesce together and grow in numbers and vehemence as Wilson began to push more and more reforms at Princeton. Throughout Wilson's time as president of Princeton, he continued to have more and more health problems. And as things got more stressful, these would flare up. In 1904, he again had issues for a while with the use of his right hand, something that had happened previously when he was stressed. And he also had problems with gastritis and a hernia. And he eventually began to develop a facial tick that would manifest whenever he was stressed or tired. And as time went on, he would become more often stressed and tired. Because despite pretty broad support at first... Wilson would eventually become embroiled in some pretty bitter college politics during his time running Princeton. And this stuff clearly contributed to his increasing health issues as time went on. Wilson's actions to make the college more modern and high quality in terms of academics, you know, they met a little bit of muted opposition, but they seem to have received far more support from the people who really mattered. By comparison, his efforts later to make the overall campus life of the college less elitist, less exclusive, more kind of small-d democratic, these led to more resistance. Wilson explained his reforms at Princeton in the following terms, quote, My own ideals for the university are those of genuine democracy and serious scholarship. The two, indeed, seem to me to go together. Any organization which introduced elements of social exclusiveness constitutes the worst possible soil for serious intellectual endeavor. End quote. Now, it's interesting. He's linking genuine democracy and serious scholarship. That seems to me to be a little bit problematic, to put it mildly depending on what he means by the term democratic. Now, if he means genuinely egalitarian, that doesn't go along with serious scholarship. If he means there's going to be some sort of like majority rule on what, I don't know, is considered good scholarship, then that's a problem. If he had said meritocracy instead of democracy, to me, that would be a much better statement if he had said, my ideals for the university are genuine meritocracy and serious scholarship. 
I could go along with that because then you're saying that you would want to promote the ideas and individuals that seem to be the best or the truest or, you know, however you would want to state it, regardless of a student or faculty member's personal background or, you know, what socioeconomic status they originally came from or, you know, whatever, what their ethnic background was like, okay, I think meritocracy goes along with serious scholarship. And if you mean democracy to mean that, then that's fine. But in this statement, anyway, he doesn't elaborate on what he means by democracy. But democracy in the sense of just, you know, pure egalitarianism in some vague sense, that to me doesn't go along with serious scholarship at all. Serious scholarship should be elitist in a particular way. Now, not elitist in the sense of, oh, because of your family name or your, you know, background or the socioeconomic status you grew up with, uh, we should take your ideas more seriously or treat you better or whatever. But elitist in the meritocracy sense, if that makes any sense. And I don't think all of the reforms Wilson was trying to do here were wrong. I think some of them may have been a little bit misguided, and some of them may have even been not bad ideas, but the way he went about trying to pursue them was likely to cause problems and more resistance than he would have encountered had he gone about them in a different way. So, In this campaign to make campus life at Princeton in some way more democratic, whatever that means, Wilson would be targeting initially the so-called eating clubs. Now, these tended to be very often exclusive clubs for the sons of the elites, and young men from humbler backgrounds were, with some exceptions, often shut out from these, particularly from the more, you know, fancy or prestigious ones, which meant that the elites lived, socialized, and ate only with their own kind— separated from the less elite students most of the time other than while actually attending classes. Wilson wanted to reform things so that all the undergraduates did these sorts of things together, and there would be less ability for the students of more elite backgrounds to segregate themselves off as drastically as they were able to up until that point. Also, my understanding is that freshmen were rarely, if at all, invited or allowed to join these clubs, so the clubs tended to be mostly, or in some cases perhaps exclusively, upperclassmen. So, beginning in 1906, Wilson began advocating a quad plan to eliminate the need for the eating clubs and to reform the layout of the college and its facilities in order to reform its kind of social structure in order to integrate the social and age and grade kind of classes of undergraduates. And he wrote, quote, The remedy I suggest is to oblige the undergraduates to live together, not in clubs, but in colleges, end quote. The overall idea was to a large extent inspired by the universities Wilson had visited in the UK, most importantly, Cambridge and Oxford. The layout that Wilson envisaged is summarized by A. Scott Berg as follows, quote, A cluster of quadrangles, each with its own eating hall, resident masters, and preceptors, all of whom would dine together. He even recommended that the larger clubs convert into colleges, each one a self-governing unit within the university system, with dormitories attached to the existing structures, end quote. Wilson would face serious resistance from some of the alumni and trustees for the overall quad plan, although he did manage to put in place the preceptorial side of it, the so-called preceptor program, 
at Princeton relatively quickly, and this was directly modeled on the so-called tutorial system that was in place at Oxford and Cambridge in the UK. Wilson hired 50 young preceptors to act as tutors or assistant instructors to the undergraduates to do things like lead discussions with them in small groups and to live in the same facilities with them and kind of work alongside them. So they're sort of like a mixture of a TA and an RA in a modern setting in terms of present-day university personnel, though there were some differences. From my understanding, unlike modern TAs and RAs, Wilson's preceptors were conventional full-time employees of the universities. They weren't students or graduate students themselves at the same time. So they were just sort of like assistant faculty. This preceptor program seemed to be fairly successful at Princeton, and as John Milton Cooper writes, it, quote, made Wilson the best-known college president in the country and newspapers and magazines carried numerous stories about this dynamic academic leader. End quote. Wilson's attempts to democratize the social class hierarchy at Princeton in various ways, for the most part, did not extend to racial exclusivity. And it only extended a bit to religious exclusivity. The university would remain overwhelmingly waspy in both faculty and students during Wilson's tenure, with very small percentages of Catholics, even fewer Jews, and no blacks amongst the student population. Wilson did get the college officially declared to be non-sectarian in 1906, leaving behind its strong Presbyterian affiliation that had always characterized it up until that point. You may recall, I may have mentioned previously, that Wilson was the first president of Princeton, who was not a Presbyterian minister himself, although he was a Presbyterian minister's son. And religious diversity was slowly increasing during Wilson's tenure at Princeton among both the faculty and students. But for the time being, it was mostly just kind of mainline Protestant denominations other than Presbyterian that were making the most gains. Now, it should be pointed out that a few of the elite colleges in America, including most of the other Ivy League schools at the time, were, at the turn of the century, starting to admit very small numbers of black students. For example, W.E.B. Du Bois got a Ph.D. from Harvard in 1896. Now, admittedly, these black students at the other Ivy League schools were rare, but they did exist. By contrast, at Princeton during the same time period, there were no black students. Now, as we've mentioned before, Princeton had long had a relatively large contingent of Southern students for a Northern school, probably the largest of any Northeastern college going all the way back to its earliest days. And Wilson himself was a prime example of this, a Southerner who went to Princeton. And with Wilson as Princeton's president, there wasn't much inclination to start accepting any black students. In 1904, Wilson wrote, quote, while there is nothing in the law of the university to prevent a Negro's entering, the whole temper and tradition of the place are such that no Negro has ever applied for admission, and it seems extremely unlikely that the question will ever assume a practical form. End quote. But there were some black students who wanted to go to Princeton, apparently. Because not long after that statement, when a black student from Virginia wrote to Wilson saying that he wanted to go to Princeton, Wilson replied, quote, that it is altogether inadvisable for a colored man to enter Princeton, end quote. 
and no black student would receive an undergraduate degree from Princeton for over 40 years. There were very small numbers of Jewish students at Princeton during this time period, but they often faced ostracism and various types of prejudice unless they were able to hide their Jewishness. This, by the way, calls to my mind the early 90s film School Ties with a very young Brendan Fraser. Now, that film was set in the 1950s at an elite boarding school. But what it depicts is very similar, apparently, to some of what went on at Princeton during Wilson's era. That said, for the most part, Wilson seems to have had less personal prejudice towards Jews than he did towards blacks, and he actually hired the first Jewish faculty member to teach at Princeton. He also seems to have had a little bit less prejudice towards Catholics than he did towards blacks, and he also hired Princeton's first Catholic faculty member. From what I've been able to tell, Wilson only received minor resistance from a few alumni and trustees to his willingness to hire more non-Presbyterian faculty, and even the occasional Jew or Catholic. And I've found no evidence at all that any alumni or trustees expressed any disagreement or unhappiness with Wilson's strong stance against admitting any black students. But there was pushback against Wilson's quad plan. And then there would be even more pushback about something else that eventually got sort of wrapped up together with the quad plan, which was ultimately what would become the biggest controversy of Wilson's presidency of Princeton, and what would ultimately cause him to look elsewhere in terms of his career. And this would be a controversy over the location of the new graduate school. This controversy was mentioned in the John Dos Passos passage that I shared at the beginning of the episode. The dean of the graduate school, a man named Andrew West, initially agreed with Wilson about placing the graduate school right in the midst of the rest of the campus. But then he significantly changed his mind and decided that he wanted the graduate school to be located at a distance from the main undergraduate facilities, no doubt in part because he wanted his little fiefdom to be as independent as possible. Now, Wilson strongly disagreed with this and would stick to his guns, arguing that the graduate school should be integrated with the rest of the university and the rest of the campus. Part of the reason that West began to advocate for geographically separating the graduate school was his experience with a house called Merwick. There, a small number of graduate students were housed, and West, who happened to live across the street from the house, sort of acted as their RA and precept. And he seems to have had a lot of fun doing this, and so as a result, he wanted to try and set up the graduate school away from the rest of the university to kind of be its own little fiefdom, like I said, and to allow him to sort of play this role on a larger scale. So clearly, a big part of this is good old-fashioned bureaucratic wrangling for control of fiefdoms, with Wilson wanting the graduate school to be much more directly under his control and supervision, and West wanting the opposite. But there's also various types of ideological difference. As I've already kind of alluded to a little bit in this episode, a few years into his presidency of Princeton, Wilson was becoming increasingly vocal both in his statements about Princeton and in his public speeches, more of which were increasingly talking about contemporary politics, with, for lack of a better term, small-D democratic ideals, opposing elitism and exclusivity, 
and his pushing of the quad plan and his opposition to physically separating the graduate school from the rest of the campus were both manifestations of this democratizing sort of spirit. While West and those who would come to support him were defenders of the more kind of elitist, good old boys tradition of Princeton, or what Wilson and his supporters would refer to as the idea of Princeton as being more of a country club than first and foremost a place of serious scholarship and intellectual work. West was in many ways the opposite of Wilson in terms of his persona and personality. In contrast to the gaunt, rather aloof Wilson, West was portly, sociable, and friendly. West also enjoyed obviously displaying favoritism in his relationships with some of his students, whereas Wilson had always striven to have the image of being as fair and consistent as possible in dealing with students. And in reading about West and his relationships with his students and his overall attitude towards the whole thing and his personality, he really strongly called to mind for me the character of Horace Slughorn from Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, if any of you have seen the movie and or read the book. In the film, he was played by the actor Jim Broadbent, I think. And if you know what I'm talking about, if you've seen the movie or read the book or both, that's how I think of West. With Wilson almost in some ways being a bit like Snape, although not exactly. I can't quite think of the right perfect Harry Potter analogy for Wilson, at least not at the moment. But anyway, Horace Slughorn, that's Andrew West, just happy to pander to the connected elite students and play favorites and just, you know, kind of wanting it to be a good old boys club. Some of the trustees and wealthy alumni clearly preferred West to Wilson, not just in terms of policy differences, but in terms of personality. And as the controversy heated up, Grover Cleveland and Moses Momo Pine would be among West's strongest supporters. And eventually, the Wilson versus West controversy would bitterly divide Princeton alumni and the Board of Trustees. Now, some other things going on at Princeton during Wilson's presidency. In 1905, Wilson, along with presidents of several other major universities, took part in a project that was spearheaded by President Teddy Roosevelt to reform the rules of football in order to make it a bit less violent. Because apparently a few people had died playing football in the early 20th century, and Teddy Roosevelt and some of the college presidents were worried that there might be an effort to just ban the sport. And so they decided to try and reform it a little bit, make it a little bit less dangerous and violent in order to head off the possibility of it getting banned. Also in 1905, Princeton opened a golf course, and the following year, 1906, it opened Carnegie Lake, the lake for Princeton's rowing crew team, which had been made possible by that donation I mentioned before, the only donation Wilson ever got out of Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie, by the way, was something of a pacifist, and he thought football was too violent, and so he wouldn't allow any of his funds to be used for football facilities. That's why he specified that he wanted his money to be used to make a lake for the rowing crew. By late 1906, no doubt due in part to the building stresses of his battles at Princeton, Wilson's health took another hit. In May of 1906, Wilson woke up one morning to find that he was blind in his left eye. 
He went to an ophthalmologist whose diagnosis was that a blood clot and rupture had occurred in that eye, and when combined with the other symptoms Wilson had been experiencing recently, the doctor concluded that Wilson had suffered a stroke, most likely his second one. The doctor prescribed complete rest for Wilson. He canceled all of his university and public speaking activities and began planning a family vacation to the UK over the summer. The board of trustees of Princeton was sympathetic and supportive and even gave him an extra stipend to help him deal with everything and to lessen his stress. Wilson returned in October, and then during the winter break of 1907, he would go on another R&R vacation, this time by himself. In January of 1907, at the urging of his wife and his doctor, he traveled solo to take a fairly long vacation in Bermuda which at the time was becoming a major vacation destination for wealthy, famous, and otherwise prominent Americans and Brits as well. Among those who frequented Bermuda during this time period were Rudyard Kipling and Mark Twain. In Bermuda, Wilson did some work on writing, but he seems to have spent much of his time relaxing, taking it easy, walking, bike riding, and socializing. At a dinner party in February, he first met Mrs. Mary Allen Peck. Mrs. Peck was an interesting woman. Born Mary Allen in 1862, the daughter of a Midwestern dentist, she'd married in her 20s. And then her first husband had died when she was still in her late 20s, leaving her broke and with an infant son to take care of. Within a year of her first husband's death, she married a wealthy widower, a textile executive from Massachusetts, named Thomas Peck. Eventually, Mrs. Peck started to vacation in Bermuda. A. Scott Berg says that Mrs. Peck's second marriage was loveless, and he writes that, quote, In Bermuda, Mrs. Peck became a woman of some notoriety, respectably married and traveling with her grown son, but living for the most part is an unusually independent woman of her time. She even smoked cigarettes. A woman of immense charm and no small amount of intrigue, Mrs. Peck was a gifted hostess, a generous conversationalist, and an inspired cook, as well as an accomplished pianist. Her salon welcomed every interesting visitor to the island. End quote. She was apparently very well-read and plugged into current events, and when she met Wilson, she already knew who he was. The two of them seemed to have hit it off immediately, and she invited him to another party that she was hosting the day before he was scheduled to return to Princeton, which Wilson did. Wilson tried to stop by once more to see her on the day that he was leaving, but she wasn't in at the time, and he left her a note that said, quote, it is not often that I can have the privilege of meeting anyone whom I can entirely admire and enjoy. End quote. After he returned to Princeton, he sent her a gift of a couple of books, one of which was written by him. Back at Princeton, the grad school and quad controversy was escalating. In June 1907, Wilson spoke to the Princeton Board of Trustees, staking out a position against the country club tradition and image of Princeton, saying things like, quote, A system of social life has grown up in the university, which divides classes, creates artificial groups for social purposes, 
and renders a wholesome university spirit impossible. End quote. Wilson then argued that intellectual pursuits and development should be the primary purpose of a university, and that social separation of students into clubs undermined this, and that his quad plan was the best way to solve the problem. After giving what was apparently a very eloquent and persuasive speech, almost all of the trustees initially voted in favor of Wilson's plan, which was only vaguely defined at the time. In fact, even Moses Pine and Grover Cleveland, who would later be some of Wilson's biggest opponents, initially voted for Wilson's proposal. However, within just days of this preliminary vote, many important alumni, some of whom were also faculty or administrators at Princeton, who liked the tradition and liked the social exclusivity and elitism of the clubs, began to push back. Andrew West, that dean of the graduate school, wrote to Wilson, quote, I feel bound to say that not only the thing that has been done, but the manner of doing it, are both wrong, not inexpedient merely, but morally wrong, end quote. West's opposition wasn't surprising to Wilson or anyone else, but Wilson would be much more shocked by the beginnings of opposition from Professor Jack Hibben, who'd long been one of Wilson's best friends. Hibben began to tell Wilson, first in kind of gentle roundabout ways, that he had some issues with Wilson's plan. And he also tried to tell Wilson that there were a lot of other important people who had some issues too. Wilson and his wife would both take Hibben's opposition very, very personally. Over the course of the summer of 1907, Wilson dug in, preparing to fight harder. He wrote to Cleveland Dodge, quote, The fight is on, and I regard it not as a fight for the development, but as a fight for the restoration of Princeton. My heart is in it more than it has been in anything else. End quote. Again, typical Wilson, whenever he was engaged in a controversy of any sort, he immediately wants to put it in dramatic, Manichaean language and to make things personal. In September, after classes had resumed for the fall semester, Wilson attended a meeting of faculty at which they discussed their stance in regard to the Quad Plan. Many of the faculty seemed to be supportive of it, but then a professor named Henry Van Dyke lodged an objection, asking for a special committee of faculty and trustees to be created to, quote, investigate the present social conditions of the university in conjunction with representatives of the alumni and students, end quote. Basically, this was a tactic to delay, possibly permanently, any implementation of the Quad Plan. The meeting became even more tense when it was Jack Hibben, of all people, who seconded Van Dyke's motion. Wilson took this extremely personally as a slap in the face. In Wilson's mind, Hibben had immediately and permanently flipped from being a friend to being an enemy and a traitor. This attitude of Wilson, this tendency of Wilson to do this sort of thing, would manifest itself even more starkly during his political career on multiple occasions. Perhaps most darkly with his stance on anyone who questioned or criticized the war once he got the United States into World War I. 
According to Wilson's brother-in-law and close friend Stockton Axon, Wilson was so hurt and so angry over Hibben's actions that he said that it actually shook his belief in the entire concept of friendship. Again, quite dramatic. In response, initially, Hibben tried to be very diplomatic about things, writing, quote, Now, Woodrow, it certainly makes my heart exceedingly heavy as I reflect that the poor but well-intended offices of friendship have so miscarried. You know that I would never have sought to rob you of hope, as Mrs. Wilson characterized it, unless I had thought that I might at the same time forearm you by forewarning you of the gathering opposition, end quote. Before breaking with Wilson on the quad plane in the graduate school, Hibben had been Wilson's closest male friend in his adult life up until that point, with the possible exception of Stockton Axon, who, of course, was Wilson's brother-in-law. Hibben's wife and Ellen Wilson, if anything, got even more engaged in viciously attacking both each other and each other's husbands than the two men did. Years later, in 1912, when the Princeton trustees chose to make Hibben president of the university. Ellen Wilson would write a very snarky kind of faux congratulatory letter to Hibben, in which she complimented Hibben's, quote, very unusual loyalty and availability, end quote. Now, that initial meeting of the faculty ended without a decision on Van Dyke's motion. A few days later, at another faculty meeting, by a four-to-one margin, the faculty voted the motion down. So the faculty were pretty much on Wilson's side at the time by a large majority. That said, a lot of wealthy alumni and trustees were not. It was, as Scott Berg puts it, turning into something of a class war. And the story of this struggle going on over the future of Princeton was starting to get out into the press a bit. By late 1907, Wilson's health was taking another hit. And so in January of 1908, he again went to Bermuda, by himself, for a six-week vacation. His wife went at the time to visit relatives in Georgia. Wilson immediately began to seek out Mrs. Peck when he got to Bermuda, and he had been corresponding with her ever since his first visit to the island. He would spend a lot of his time on this trip socializing with her, usually in the company of other people as well including her son and some of the other notable people vacationing on the island, such as Mark Twain. But Wilson and Mrs. Peck also took long walks together. According to Scott Berg, quote, Wilson talked constantly of his wife, enough that it suggested his own concerns about Mary Peck's attractiveness, end quote. On one of these walks, Wilson said he had something very important he wanted to discuss with her. And he said, quote, My friends tell me that if I will enter the contest and can be nominated and elected governor of New Jersey, I stand a very good chance of being the next president of the United States. Shall I, or shall I not, accept the opportunity they offer? End quote. Pretty interesting that Wilson is discussing this with Mrs. Peck and not with his wife. And again, during this time period when he wasn't on Bermuda, he was Mrs. Peck's pen pal. Now, supposedly Mary Peck thought about this for a little while and then replied, quote, Why not? Statesmanship has been your natural bent, your real ambition all your life. And God knows, our country needs men like you in her national life. End quote. So, I guess we can in part thank Mrs. Peck 
among others, of course, for nudging Wilson toward politics. Had she definitively said no to this idea, who knows? Perhaps it would have nudged Wilson's thinking a little bit against going into politics, and then perhaps the U.S. and the planet could have been spared all the disastrous effects of Wilson's presidency. So, thanks a pantload, Mrs. Peck. When Wilson returned to Princeton in February, he would renew his campaign to reduce what he saw as excessive class stratification at Princeton. Simultaneously, his public political speeches began more and more to center on class warfare-type themes of the people versus the wealthy elites. In the summer of 1908, Wilson took a solo vacation to Scotland, and when he returned to Princeton, he found that Andrew West had gained a significant advantage on him in the battle over the location and control of the graduate school. William Cooper Proctor, a grandson of one of the founders of the famous Proctor & Gamble Company, had attended Princeton decades ago, graduating in 1883. And in 1908, he offered to donate $500,000 towards constructing Princeton's graduate college. But he had two stipulations. First, the college would have to match his donation with their own funds. And secondly, the graduate school had to be built on a site that Proctor favored, which would not be Wilson's preferred location near the center of campus. This offer, at first glance by Wilson, seemed to have come out of the blue, but in reality, as was quickly apparent, it had been schemed for and arranged by Andrew West, who had actually been one of Proctor's high school students decades ago, and the two had remained friends ever since. There was some money available from another source, known as the Swan Estate, to help pay for the graduate school. And this potential donation stipulated that the graduate school would be built where Wilson wanted it, near the middle of campus. But the Proctor money was twice as much as the Swan money. And it, of course, stipulated the opposite in terms of location. Neither batch of money would, by itself, be enough to pay for all of the graduate school. But the Proctor money was a lot bigger. In terms of specifics, Proctor proposed two possibilities. One was a site near the Merwick House that West had initially favored. But Proctor eventually also said he'd be willing to accept the grad school being built at another site near the Princeton Golf Course, which was about a mile from the main center of campus. Supposedly, Grover Cleveland had endorsed this location as well. During this time period, by the way, from 1908 to 1910, Wilson's letters back and forth to Mrs. Peck increased noticeably in their frequency. Wilson also visited her quite a few times at her apartment in New York City where she lived, having separated from her husband. Wilson was able to see her in New York City because he was frequently in the city for educational and speaking engagements. And to this day, no one is sure exactly what all happened or didn't happen between them. Biographer A. Scott Berg discusses this in the following passage, quote, In later years, Wilson himself would admit that there had once been a passage in his life of, Wilson's words, folly and gross impertinence, during which he had neglected, again Wilson's words, standards of honorable behavior. Back to Berg, he would later confess to the contemptible error and madness of a few months, again, quoting Wilson often on here, 
which left him stained and unworthy, but say that it was a folly long ago loathed and repented of. Ellen Wilson would once speak of the Peck affair as the only unhappiness her husband caused her during their married life. Yet, the letters between Wilson and Mrs. Peck, for all their friendliness, don't reveal, or even suggest, physical intimacy. They do not even imply emotional intimacy. In modern times of looser sexual standards, Wilson's descriptions of his folly too easily appears to be that of a sexual affair. But at the turn of the 20th century, a man of Wilson's rigid morality held himself to stricter standards. In view of Woodrow Wilson's nature, and with no conflicting evidence anywhere else in his life, just being alone with another woman, perhaps touching her hand, even seeking her solace when Ellen was unable to provide the comforting shoulder she had long provided, was probably what Woodrow Wilson considered folly and gross impertinence. End quote. John Milton Cooper Jr., the other major recent Wilson biographer, is maybe a little bit more ambiguous sounding on the matter, though also pretty skeptical that a physical affair took place. He does note, however, that Ellen Wilson seems to have been very suspicious and unhappy about Wilson's relationship with Mrs. Peck right off the bat. Cooper also mentions that a close friend of a guy named Dr. Carrie Grayson, who would become Wilson's close friend and personal physician during his time at the White House, that a close friend of Dr. Grayson wrote in his diary after Ellen Wilson's death that Mrs. Wilson had apparently confided to Dr. Grayson that, quote, the Peck affair was the only unhappiness he had caused her during their married life. Not that there was anything wrong or improper about it, for there was not, but just that a brilliant mind and an attractive woman had somehow fascinated, temporarily, Mr. Wilson's mind, and she, Mrs. Wilson, did not want to share his confidence of his inner mind with anyone. End quote. Now, apparently, according to John Milton Cooper, quote, Something happened between them, meaning Wilson and Mrs. Peck, in 1908 that made Wilson feel guiltier still, end quote, than he already had been in some of his earlier letters to his wife that year, where he talked about his own guilt and unhappiness with his conduct or something like that. Now, back to Cooper's words, quote, Seven years later, after Ellen's death, when Wilson became engaged to Edith Bowling Galt, Stories about Mrs. Peck surfaced again, and there were threats that some of his letters to her would be published. In an agony of remorse, Wilson drafted a shorthand statement in which he declared, These letters disclose a passage of folly and gross impertinence in my life. I am deeply ashamed and repentant. Neither in act nor even in thought was the purity or honor of the lady concerned touched or sullied, and my offense she had generously forgiven. End quote. Cooper then cites what Wilson wrote at the time to Edith Galt, who would later become his second wife. Quote, I dreaded the revelation which seemed to be threatened because I knew that it would give a tragically false impression of what I really have been and am, because it might make the contemptible error and madness of a few months seem a stain upon a whole life. End quote. Cooper then writes of Mrs. Peck's conduct, quote, for her part, Mary Peck behaved with restraint and dignity. Despite her divorce in 1911 and dire financial need, she never betrayed what had passed between her and Wilson. 
She never published anything about him until after his death, when she wrote some magazine articles and a gossipy memoir, which were more about her than him. End quote. Interestingly, during the 1912 presidential campaign, in which Wilson was, of course, the Democratic nominee running against Republican Taft and progressive T.R., rumors about the Peck affair began to surface. And of all people, it was Teddy Roosevelt who dismissed the possibility, but in such a way as to insult Wilson, saying, quote, You can't convince the American people that a man is a Romeo who looks so much like the apothecary's clerk, end quote. And I've got to say, I, I just love this response on the part of T.R. This, this is an almost Trumpian move. This sort of, you know, apparently but not really deflecting the potential personal scandal of his opponent while simultaneously insulting his opponent, basically saying, come on, Wilson's not nearly cool or interesting enough to even have had an affair. He's too much of a freaking dork. I just love that response by T.R. Anyway, you know, what happened, we'll never know for sure. Putting it all together, it kind of looks to me, first off, like Wilson maybe was drama queening and kind of, you know, flailing or flagellating himself a little bit excessively over what may not have been an actual physical sexual consummated affair. That this may, in a way, almost kind of smack of Jimmy Carter's, you know, oh, I have lusted in my heart comments back in the 70s. But also, it looks like when you put all the statements together, that perhaps Wilson tried to make a physical move on Mrs. Peck at some point, and she didn't go for it. When you put it all together, some of the statements seem to point in that direction, that he may have made some sort of a physical move, that she, you know, in some way turned it down, and then he was apologetic and felt guilty about having tried something, and then that's why he's still insisting, you know, that her honor is not to be questioned. She didn't do anything wrong or whatever that, you know, that maybe she turned him down and then he later regretted having tried. So who knows? That looks to me like the most likely explanation of what exactly happened between them. Now, getting back to the grad school controversy, which was coming to a head. In October of 1909, Wilson personally met with William Proctor and tried to convince him to agree to fund the graduate school facility to be built on the main campus, but Proctor wouldn't budge. And at the next board of trustees meeting, by a vote of 14 to 10, the trustees voted to accept Proctor's donation with its attached strings. Wilson then basically let it be known that he would probably resign if this thing went through because, as he put it, quote, the acceptance of this gift has taken the guidance of the university out of my hands entirely, and I seem to have come to the end, end quote. And when he was asked to reconsider such statements, he replied, quote, I cannot accede to the acceptance of gifts upon terms which take the educational policy of the university out of the hands of the trustees and faculty and permit it to be determined by those who give money, end quote. Then some of Wilson's supporters among the trustees started to launch a counterattack. Proctor then offered a compromise. He offered to still make the gift if two different graduate school facilities could be built, one on the main campus and one outside of it. Now, this was a proposal that apparently some point previously Wilson himself had previously made in some of the kind of wrangling and back and forth on the issue. 
But now, whether he had intended it earnestly or not initially, Wilson refused to accept this compromise offer. Most of the trustees at this point were starting to side with Wilson, and then Proctor withdrew his offer of $500,000 altogether. This then made some of the trustees switch again and turn against Wilson for basically having lost out on such a large potential donation. With things still not finally decided, Wilson again went on a vacation to Bermuda in February of 1910. This time, he actually didn't get to see Mrs. Peck there because she was in New York. By 1910, as Wilson was increasingly being courted by powerful New Jersey Democratic Party operatives to run for governor, he was becoming more and more angry as his plans for Princeton were being frustrated. In April, he spoke to an alumni group in Pittsburgh, where he talked more and more in class warfare sorts of terms about Princeton, only serving, quote, the classes, not the masses, end quote, and he said that he wanted to change that. He also said, quote, will America tolerate the seclusion of graduate students, end quote. Again, getting into hysterical histrionics, A. Scott Berg says that Wilson supposedly looked and sounded a bit unhinged while giving this speech. I almost picture Howard Dean having his breakdown and going, yeah! This speech and other statements around this time period seem to have pushed more and more alumni and trustees to the other side rather than bringing them over to Wilson's side. But a lot of outsiders, including progressive-minded reformers in politics and in the press, who wanted to democratize lots of aspects of American institutions more, to a lot of those sorts of people, this was resonating. So Wilson was losing support within the Princeton community, but at the same time, building more and more of a following and more progressive bona fides with the outside kind of rest of the country. Then, on May 18, 1910, a very wealthy Massachusetts hermit and Princeton alumnus, class of 1848, named Isaac Chauncey Wyman, died. Four days later, Wilson picked up his Sunday New York Times to find a front-page story saying that Wyman had left $10 million to Princeton for the purpose of building a graduate school, and that the specific men who would be given control of using these funds would be two guys, a trustee named John Raymond and Andrew West, the dean of the graduate school. Wilson pretty much thought it was over at this point. Having read this story, he turned to his wife and said, quote, We have beaten the living, but we cannot fight the dead. The game is up. End quote. Now, in the end, when it was all shook out, Princeton got nowhere near $10 million from the estate. They actually got around $800,000. But between that and the money from Proctor, which he again offered after hearing the news of the Wyman bequest, Princeton stood to get a lot of money. But Wilson would have no control over exactly how it would be used. So Wilson lost on two of his three major efforts at Princeton during his presidency. He got his preceptorial system in place, but he failed in regard to the quad plan and putting the graduate school where he wanted it. That said, to be fair, overall he was ahead of the curve in terms of the trends in America's top universities in regard to these sorts of things. A few decades later, both Harvard and Yale would adopt versions of quad plans, and every major university would have its graduate school integrated 
with the undergraduates in sort of the main campus facilities. John Milton Cooper writes of Wilson's loss at these sorts of battles at Princeton, quote, If he had won his academic civil war, American higher education would have had an undisputed champion. Yet if he had won, he would have had to stay at Princeton and continue to remake the university in his own image. Andrew West's windfall liberated Woodrow Wilson from an academic life and opened a larger career for him in politics. End quote. In other words, Andrew West's victory provided perhaps the biggest push of Wilson into politics. So, thanks a pantload, Andrew West. Having finally decisively lost this fight, Wilson began looking to leave Princeton, and he decided to jump into politics, which he'd been kind of tentatively feeling out for a few years. But now he was going to jump in with both feet, all in. He was wise, though, in that he didn't officially resign until he'd already secured something to transition to. And so, while technically still holding the presidency of Princeton, he began preparing to seek the office of governor of New Jersey. you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level, 
And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out. And you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level. And you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.